You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour. With host, General David Grange. With co-host, Ranger Doug. Until we go down. Welcome to Veterans Radio Hour. Here's General Grange. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. Tonight we're recording our third in a series we call Our Wounded. And our guest tonight is Master Sergeant Retired Dave Smith of Special Forces. We'll conclude our series of three programs, and Dave will discuss how things went for him from Walter Reed on his journey into the rest of his life. And now over to you, General Grange. Thanks, Ranger Doug, and thanks again to all participating our guests on our wounded program, program number three. So David's with us tonight. Rick is on deployment to Tennessee. Andy is on radio silence tonight. And we have Kevin with us. And also thanks to Steve for the last two programs. I'd like to say is how does a nation take care of their wounded? And actually, as the United States takes care of its wounded, it means everything to a GI. And we do it well. David, your comments the other night and Rick's, Reminds me of Vietnam. Reminds me of the first time I was there. What you hear, your focus, what to expect, the evacuation, your concern of comrades, your expectations if that happens to you. And usually it's not exactly what you think it'll be. I remember the first time I was hit in Vietnam in an air assault operation after we came in during the monsoons, 64 days in the field. And this air assault went to a very large landing zone, LZ, in I-Corps. And I was a lead platoon on the lead bird of that platoon. And my battalion commander jumped in my bird with uh, two of his radio operators. I had to move two of mine off because of the ACL, the load capacity of the UE. And when we landed, we started moving into the perimeter. The next thing I know, I was laying on the ground after moving towards the jungle line, which which was being prepped by Cobra gunships and didn't know what happened. And I just was kind of laying there and I couldn't see out of one of my eyes and couldn't feel my arm at all. And looking around, there was some smoke and not much gunfire, but just the birds shooting up above. And then I'm just thinking about, okay, where's my weapon? Where's the rest of my chalk from the aircraft? And kind of got stuck, struggled to my feet. The guy grabbed me and said, let's go, let's go. we got to get out of here. And I'm looking around for a medevac bird, Red Cross on it. And there wasn't one. And someone said, get on this lift ship. And me and uh, five, four others, five of us, got on the bird. And we started to uh, get ready to take off. The, the whole floor of the aircraft was full of blood and everybody was slipping. I remember one of my squad leaders who was I was with on that the bird that uh, hit by was got hit by an ID I believe we thought I didn't know at the time command detonated we called the booby trap in those days and uh, trying to get a cravat on that guy's arm I met my squad leader and I realized my left arm wouldn't work at all and the sleeve was all burnt up and everything and then my trying to tie a cravat 
moving around his arm on his bicep. His blood was squirting out everywhere, and and uh, had to use my teeth in one arm. I couldn't use my other arm. And then he helped me with his good arm, and together we put a cravat on to try to do a tourniquet, which is kind of half-ass, as we take took off. No seats in the bird, so then we started worrying about falling out because we were just sliding around in the blood, calling ass to some aid station, which we landed at. And then they started grabbing us and cutting our clothes off and our, taking our watches and cutting our rings off. And, and they even cut my wedding ring off. And we're laying there and outside and on stretchers. And uh, not knowing what happened, the, latest, the next thing is I look up, my father's standing over me. And I remember asking him, I said, hey, did, where's my weapon? Where's my car 15? He says, I got it. Don't worry. And I found out at that time there were five of us wounded and two were killed in that explosion. One one RTO, all I found was his foot in a boot. And for me, I thought I had feelings of, being pissed off. What came to my mind was that at that particular fight, I didn't get the chance to take the fight to the enemy. And they were in the wood line somewhere. And they got us. And I just felt it was unfair. And then I felt immediate sorrow for the guys that didn't make it and how bad the other guys in my platoon were wounded. Luckily, I took the five WIA Tank commander took the two KIA. And then my journey was the 85th and back there in I-Corps in Vietnam for about a day. And then I guess it was a Nightingale flight, whatever they call the medevac aircraft, to Guam. Being in the hospital there in Guam, a Navy hospital, the only soldier there, everybody else that was wounded was a Marine or a Navy corpsman. And getting surgery there and waking up feeling sorry for my sorry ass and then thinking as I looked to the bed to my left and to my right how bad the other guys were hurt. And then telling myself to buck up, stop whining. These guys are hurt much worse than you are. And then hanging out there for about a month, kind of ups and downs with a cast from my wrist all the way up to my shoulder. Left eye couldn't still couldn't see out of it. Eardrum blown out, shrapnel on most of my body. And then getting a call from home saying they got a telegram, very much like in those days how they did it with Western Union. Your son's okay. He has wounds to his face, his head, left arm, chest, back, and leg, but he's okay. And how families got notified those days compared to today. And how poorly that was managed. And why the leadership let that be done that way, I wasn't sure. I couldn't understand it as a young lieutenant. And then at night, because I was an officer, I was allowed to go out, out, leave the hospital, drinking, getting in fights and bars, whatever, in the island of Guam, like some dummy, figure out what I was going to do next. And I won't talk about it in this program, but how I then got to the Army Hospital in, in Guam, though my order said, after 30 days in Guam, you will go to Indian Town Gap to the VA Hospital for 90 days. In no way was I going to do that. And ended up getting on an aircraft called a submarine chaser and flying back to Vietnam. 
with an eye patch and a cast on. And my father was still there, so obviously I was able to get him to put me back into a unit. But it reminded me of David's stories of Walter Reed and how those things go through your mind and your and your emotions of being mad, the emotions of being sad, the emotions of being happy for those around you, and, and whether it be comrades or family, whatever the case may be. Many people talked about in the two programs, especially program number two, about the use of medevac. And I tell you, God, I myself love them. And did they ever become the love of the GI from Korea up through today? Vietnam is especially true. It really made a difference between living or dying. And just remembering the guts of these pilots under fire. Second time wounded, I remember being extracted with my hunter-killer team that ran into a battalion base camp of NBA. Being pulled out seven again, two killed, five wounded, and pulling up guys in the jungle penetrator. One guy sitting on the frame, the other guy in your lap, hugging each other as you were cranked up into the belly of the bird, thrown on the deck there, and then they'd bring two more up, and then I would go next, last. The training that was talked about by Rick Lamb and others today and what it was before. It was pretty bad before, I think. I mean, of course, not like the Civil War or World War One or any of those fights. But the advancements today in tourniquets, TCCC, combat medics we have, the buddy aid that's trained, transfusions in the field, all the research and development and advancements to keep our boys alive and our girls. And you know the basics of training, everybody on this call, those that are listening. We always talk about training, shoot, move, and communicate. But today we had medical training as the fourth pillar, the fourth leg. And it's not, it's not only the morale builder of the soldier, a trust enabler as well, but it is a force multiplier. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you very much, sir. And uh, your observations on your own situation are very important to this story because, of course, you're one of our wounded as well. And as you know, we have the good fortune of having one of those medevac pilots who's a close friend of both of ours with us and does us a great honor by joining us tonight, and that's Kevin Sweeney. Kevin, would you please give a short introduction to yourself, please? Well, thanks, Ranger Doug and uh, General Grange. I appreciate being asked to be on the program. I was one of the guys that served prior to these recent two conflicts. I spent 26 years in the Army Medical Department in medevac and other operational medicine assignments. I served in four different medevac units, and I had the unique opportunity to fly both the Huey, the UH-1, and the Blackhawk, the UH-60 aircraft. When I retired in Fayetteville in 1998, I did some contract work for the Army at Fort Bragg, and then I became a Department of the Army civilian where I worked at United States Army Special Operations Command in the Aviation Directorate there. So in this assignment, I, I worked directly with the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment, and they were transforming at that time to meet the needs of the, the new global war on terror. Big honor to be invited here on this podcast 
And so thanks for the opportunity. Wow. Let's take a short break for a commercial. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. You do not want to miss what's coming next. The trucking industry was born by the military during World War I and therefore became the father of the trucking industry. Being a truck driver achieved national attention in the 1960s when songs and movies included truck driving as a part of the storyline. If you're looking for an easy job that pays well, then GTS Transportation is looking for you. GTS Transportation is a leading transportation company with a great history. We are an international company with opportunities all around the world. Apply now by going to our website, gtscarrier.com, or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Apply now and become a part of truck driving history. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. If you are one of the 20 million veterans who served in the United States military, then this message is for you. During your time in the service, you might have experienced conditions and mishaps that have or will have an impact on your health and quality of life. Sometimes it takes years for these conditions to manifest themselves. Most veterans ignore the early warning signs and therefore miss opportunities that could have improved their health or extended their life. It is important that you identify underlying conditions early while you have a chance to make a difference. The VDAC software was created to help you identify presumptive service-connected conditions as well as assist you with filling out any of your VA disability forms. Not every veteran wants to file a claim. However, knowing what health issues to be aware of is an added benefit of living a long, healthy life. For those who want to file for their VA disability, the VDAC application greatly simplifies and expedites this process and therefore produces a perfectly filled out VA disability form with supporting material. For more information, go to nifv.org. Again, that's nifv.org. The goal of VDAC, the Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is to empower you, the veteran, with a quick and easy tool that aids you with filling out your VA disability forms. Welcome back from our break. This is Ranger Doug. You're here with us on program number 11, part three of Our Wounded at Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. Enjoy the rest of the show. Uh, Dave, I'd like to take uh, the opportunity again to introduce you as our guest of honor to take us through the rest of your story. We'd like to find out after Walter Reed, where did you do, where did you go, and how did you end up where you are now? What are you doing? Over to you, Dave. Uh, thanks, Ranger Doug. Dave Smith, I, I joined the Army in 1990, and, and I served until I medically retired in 2013. Um, I was medically retired for wounds I received in Afghanistan and Helmand Province uh, from an IED in 2010. In some of the previous podcasts, I've talked about, you know, what happened 
in the, in the, the IED incident when it happened and the, the actions on, on the ground and uh, the medical procedures there that my team undertook to save me and, and one of my teammates. I discussed the medevac uh, process that took me from the point of injury there in Afghanistan all the way through uh, multiple stops till I got to Walter Reed. And then, uh, as, as I had said before in, in one of the previous podcasts, I was an, an inpatient for about four months at Walter Reed. And, and then I went outpatient. And, and really, when you go outpatient, you know, in a situation like that, all that means is that uh, you're no longer sleeping in a hospital bed. Um, I was in Special Operations Command, so I was able to, to get an apartment in Rockville. But I went to the hospital every single day from about 7 in the morning till 4 or 5 in the evening. And it was just, that was my place of business. That was, it was like my job, you know, to go for physical therapy and occupational therapy and, and, and all the other things that I had to undergo, um, five days a week. And I did that for about a year and a half. And it was while I was at Walter Reed as, as an outpatient and, and started you know, started slowly recovering from my wounds and, and getting a little bit better, that, um, you know, I began to think about what was next, you know, what was going to be next for me. Because, you know, as, as I had said in one of the previous podcasts, I, I was doing exactly what I wanted to be doing with my life, uh, right up until the point that I was injured. And, you know, now that was no longer an option for me. So the challenging part for me was to figure out, you know, what was going to be the second best thing that I wanted to do. And that was challenging. Uh, add to that, that that physically I wasn't going to be able to do some of the things that I had done before. Um, so I was going to have to rely more on my brain and more on my mind and, and things like that than I was any kind of physical ability or, or anything like that. So, um you know, one of the great things about Walter Reed, is particularly the time when I was there, was that every day there were, you know, many veteran service organizations, VSOs, um, 501c3s, that were there, you know, all serving a need. You know, some some were doing things that were good for the soul. Some some were doing things that were good for uh, for families, <laughs> and others. Uh, you know, we're, we're trying to help the soldier identify and pick up and move on to the next objective. And it was in the course of that that, you know, as I'm trying to kind of floating from, from, from one thing to the next and trying to figure out what in the world I was going to do next, um, I was granted the opportunity to go to school and, and was, got to go to Georgetown University, which had never been an option for me before. And uh, that was really good for my traumatic brain injury, but it was also good for me because I recognized that whatever I was going to do, I was going to have to retrain myself. Um, you know, the the traits and the attributes that, that made me an SF guy, I knew were valuable, but I had to come up with a new set of skills, and I had to come up with a new way to apply them. And that was going to require retraining. So I was able to uh, to work on my bachelor's degree and, and knock out my bachelor's degree. I got almost all of it knocked out while I was at Walter Reed. Um, had a fair amount of credit that transferred over from my time in the Army. And that was a really great experience. I really, I truly enjoyed uh, being a student at Georgetown 
and taking ethics classes and learning about uh, the birth of Western civilization, politics and religion and philosophy from, you know, from from the earliest period, from, from biblical times all the way through to present day. And that evolution of those three things, which which make up Western civilization as we understand it today, it was a great uh, baseline for me. And at the about that time, I, I became introduced uh, to a gentleman. His name was Jared Shepard, and he was starting an organization called Warriors Ethos. And I think I ended up being the second person through the program. And the purpose, you know, of Warriors Ethos at the time was just to help severely wounded uh, soldiers, Marines, service members um, identify what was next career-wise, and then and then he would help orient them on that path. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I, I thought more and more about entrepreneurship and starting a company of my own. So what I was able to do through through Jared and through Warriors Ethos was uh, spend a lot of one-on-one time with Jared, uh, who had started and founded his own company, uh, his own IT company, and it was successful and it was growing and it was doing well. So I was able to get entrepreneurship experience from him, um, understand business fundamentals, and, and kind of realize how very, very similar they are to, to military fundamentals just applied somewhat differently. And uh, I got to spend time with the CFO and with the COO and participate in uh, board meetings. Um, get, I got to see the government contracting uh, process up front from start to finish. And, and it, was, it was educational. And it, and it really show, began to show me that there were other options and quite frankly, they were options that I had never even considered before. So um, for me, you know, as bad as getting wounded was, uh, you know, I, I got to be honest, there were so many opportunities that came out of that. Um, so many people that I got to meet, um, Andy Anderson is one of them. Uh, I met him when I was at Walter Reed, and, and uh, he and another gentleman named Joe Hickey, used to, to bring uh, dinners from Bobby Van's Steakhouse to some of the, the inpatients there at Walter Reed. And that's how I first got to know them. That's how I first got to meet Andy. And, you know, this was in 2010 when I was an inpatient, and it's 2021, and Andy and I are still friends to this day. Um, there are dozens of other stories just like that. I'd have never had the opportunity to go to Georgetown University and get a bachelor's degree and then a master's degree, um, if not for this circumstance that, that put me in, in Walter Reed and put me in Washington, D.C. And I probably never would have had the opportunity, the business opportunities that I've had. Um, again, same reason. And, and today, whereas I started out uh, as the second person to go through Walter Reed, in what was at the time a very, very basic, bare-bones organization. It was just started by a guy trying to help some other people, you know, find their true north. And uh, today I'm the executive director of Warriors Ethos, and, and we help hundreds of service members a year um, find their what's next. We help them through the transition process and into their next career, whatever that is for them. 
And so I'm very proud of, of what we do at Warriors Ethos. I'm very humbled by the experience of being at Walter Reed. I, I, as, as strange as it may sound, I'm, I'm very proud of being in that class of Walter Reed, 2010 to 2013, because um, it really was a display of the human spirit. You know, seeing a lot of the strength and the resilience and, and the pain and the frustration and coming through all of that. And, and honestly, I, you know, I'm a better person for it. I'd rather not gotten wounded, but I got so much more out of it than, than being wounded, you know, than, than that. So, I, you know, I, again, I'll just wrap it up and say I'm, I'm extremely happy. Uh, with with how things have turned out, I've had more opportunities come my way than I probably could have ever envisioned, you know, before. And you know, it's just it's one of those things. You get wounded, you get knocked down, you get hurt, you get beat up. If you serve in the military long enough, you're going to get dinged up. That's just how it is. It, it's it's what are you going to do when that happens? That's what that's what matters, and that's what defines you. Thank you, Dave. That's that's really great. You've, you've taken us through the whole experience. And as Rick Lamb said last time, uh, and he's been badly wounded as well, I've just been hurt. And as I mentioned, uh, there's a difference between being injured as opposed to being wounded by enemy action. Only someone who's had that happen can understand. The rest of us can only think about it. But uh, it's meant a lot to us to have you with us, and I think those that listen, especially some that may be going through a dark period, can take quite a bit from your story. I'd like to pass it off to General Range. General? Yes, thank you, Ranger Doug. Uh, two things that just came out of this conversation. First of all, um, you know, we have to take heed of those that have been injured that may not be in the in a combat situation, in other words, a Purple Heart situation, the military can beat you up hard, as David just said. And, and Ranger Doug talked about himself being injured. Uh, there's some terrible injuries in training. There's just sustained injuries from ruck marching, long long periods of time, parachuting, uh, you know, your ears, your eyes, uh, your, just your mind. Um PTSD just from witnessing the terrible things on, on the battlefield or just military mishaps, accidents, training accidents. They're all important to, to, to the veterans that experience them, whether it be enemy, direct enemy contact or whether it be in, in training or other, other accidents that happen or just cumulative pounding on your body. And so this, this show, this program pays respect to are wounded. In my mind, uh, wounded is a broad category that we're discussing on these three programs, and it is just, it's very important. So we're not discounting any injuries through service. Uh, the other thing I think that's very important on what David said, he mentioned his, uh, as an executive director of Warrior Ethos, uh, there's other organizations out there as well, and, and and we both know, all of us on this program know, that many veterans have not been able to transition as well as, let's say, David Smith. And so whatever we can do in our, some of our future programs may be to 
maybe shed some more light on other organizations besides Warrior Warrior Ethos that can help our our wounded. And it's it's uh it's it's something that's the one of the purposes. It's a, one of the purposes of the Veterans Broadcast Network, which this program, uh, Veterans Radio Hour, is part of. One of the purposes is to support fellow veterans, injured veterans, from training injuries, sustained injuries, combat injuries, even the probably the signature wound of Afghanistan and Iraq being. PTSD and TBI. At this point, I'd like to transition to Kevin. Kevin Sweeney, medevac pilot, military leader. And just talk about, let's, let's back up just a minute. On the show previously, we talked about Blackhawks and we talked about UEs, uh in a medevac role. I want to lead the conversation by saying I remember in Grenada we had the uh, fortune, and it was, to do the first uh, Blackhawk combat air assault in Grenada. All six aircraft were hit. I think the minimum number of hits were 40. And the strength of that Blackhawk uh, with fuel bladders and tanks, rather, and, and uh, the aircraft capabilities. Yeah, most of them lost their avionics, and one of them crashed badly and burned, and several deaths and injuries up to the pilots and some of my guys. But they were all uh, were able to fly and land in the airfield, besides the one, because of the strength of that helicopter. The UEs would have probably all gone down. Now, I say that because I actually have a love of UEs. And UEs, and I'm not like Kevin. I, I, I flew, believe it or not, I flew helicopters for a while. And and, uh, and UEs is a, a tough little bird that can fly around and get those tight poster stamp LZPZs and, and uh, come back with leaves in the skids all the time and, and hang in there. They just don't have that lift or that endurance. Or that strength under with, with the damage that a Blackhawk has, but boy, do they have a lot of medevac history. And I like to talk about that a little bit, Kevin, and pay a little tribute to that airframe, if you don't mind picking up uh, from that intro. Yes, sir. Well, thanks a lot. Um, I think about the differences between the UH-1, the Huey, and the Blackhawk quite a bit, honestly, even. Even now that I've uh, got a little older, um, the Huey was such a unsophisticated, great performing airplane. We, you know, we learned how to fly fly it in flight school. Transitioned to my first unit in the UH-1, and I mean, it was such a simple aircraft. It was basically, you know, you remember this, General: battery switch on, main fuel switch on. Set the throttle, hit the trigger. Take it up to 6,600, and you're ready to fly through effective transitional lift. The Blackhawk, on the other hand, was a much different airplane. And uh, I remember when I was in a unit at Fort Bragg 
the original dust-off, 57th Medical Detachment, had a chance to command that unit later as a major. We were the first unit in the Army, the first medevac unit in the Army to field the Black Hawk when the UH-60 first came off the line. And we had to, we we got sent to Fort Rucker for six weeks. I spent just about an entire summer at Fort Rucker learning how to fly that aircraft. And you're talking about uh, the mission in Grenada. I had a chance to to fly in that mission with with my unit. And uh, the beautiful part about the Blackhawk, of course, and and you talked about this, Dave, was the uh, the backup systems. If you lost hydraulics there was a backup system for it if you lost an engine you had another engine since it was a dual engine aircraft avionics backup systems these new model hh60 mike models that they have now for medevac are just incredible um, i'd like to get in a cockpit sometime but i've read up on them with uh, all their gps and and uh, flare and all these other components that make the aircraft so stable and and so mission capable. Um, great airplanes, both of them. I I had 1,200 hours in the in the Huey and a thousand in the Blackhawk, and uh, really enjoyed it. Well, thanks, Kevin. Uh, as you can see, what Kevin just articulated is the reason why Ranger Dave Grange was only allowed to fly the simple Huey. And never got his transition, but went back to being a grunt. But anyway, <laughs> I think that uh, it's just, you know, the love of the helicopter. Just think what helicopters have done for our military. And, to, and we're, we're focused tonight on the wounded. Our wounded GIs. Or even, in a sad way, thinking about it, you know, moving our KIAs off the battlefield. Getting people out. The sound of those rotors, yeah, alerting the enemy with RPGs and fans and everything else. But to, to American GIs, it's a it's a sound of music, a beautiful, beautiful sound. Those those birds coming in, uh, the excitement being put on by assault aircraft, and the and the hope answered by medevac coming in. I think probably I like to just ask one quick question, Kevin. The aircraft to date in history that probably has the most medevacs, is it still the Huey? I would imagine it probably is, Dave. All those missions that were flown during the Vietnam War, I have so many uh, older friends that are mentors to me. And, uh, you know, flew the the UH-1. I don't have any idea... Uh, about the accuracy of that statement I just made, but I believe probably uh, more missions, more more medevac missions were flown in the UH-1 during the Vietnam War than than these current two conflicts. I would probably say that's accurate. Yeah, I, I think it's right. I don't have facts to base it on, but I, and, and just the idea of bringing Huey in, no nods, so all ambient light, if any, in the monsoons, being directed into a postage stamp PZ for a wounded GI, limited visibility, zero visibility with mountains, but knowing the map. Remember now, they're on map, no GPS, no nods. Being directed in by voice radio. Can't see smoke. 
can't really see a strobe light because of the because of the fog and the rain. But coming in by voice radio radio over a prick twenty five or seventy seven to pick up a wounded GI. Unbelievable, unbelievable courage. And I want to make sure we we hit on that tonight in program number three because. That's what saved so many people's lives uh, was those medevac aircraft. I went that part there, and, and then over to you, Ranger Doug. Let's take a moment for a commercial. Back in a moment. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour with host General David Grange. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again. 847-754-4667. If you are one of the 20 million veterans who served in the United States military, then this message is for you. During your time in the service, you might have experienced conditions and mishaps that have or will have an impact on your health and quality of life. Sometimes it takes years for these conditions to manifest themselves. Most veterans ignore the early warning signs and therefore miss opportunities that could have improved their health or extended their life. It is important that you identify underlying conditions early while you have a chance to make a difference. The VDAC software was created to help you identify presumptive service-connected conditions as well as assist you with filling out any of your VA disability forms. Not every veteran wants to file a claim. However, knowing what health issues to be aware of is an added benefit of living a long, healthy life. For those who want to file for their VA disability, the VDAC application greatly simplifies and expedites this process and therefore produces a perfectly filled out VA disability form with supporting material. For more information, go to nifv.org. Again, that's nifv. The goal of VDAC, the Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is to empower you, the veteran, with a quick and easy tool that aids you with filling out your VA disability forms. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985. Serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com.
Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. And here's Ranger Doug. Well, I would like to just uh, ask Dave Smith to make uh, a final comment. And Dave, once again, we can't thank you enough for joining us. You've really enlightened me on, on the process that goes very deeply into what my family and I do. And we can't thank you enough. And it will mean something good for veterans and service personnel. So, Dave, a thought or two, and then it'll be back over to General Dave for wrapping up. Uh, thanks, Ranger Doug, and, and General General Range. Thanks very much for for having me on the show. Um, you know, I, I just wrap it up with this one thought. You know, it, listening to you all talk about you know Vietnam and 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 how things have progressed to to now in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and Syria, um, and, and who knows what the future holds. You know, who knows where we're going to be, you know, five years from now, a year from now, ten years from now, whenever. We'll be somewhere because that's how it is. Um, and it'll be our sons and grandsons that are there and granddaughters and, and daughters that will be be handling that for us. Um, but I can say that you know, medical technology and the ability to save lives, as we said in the first episode, it's just come so far. And it's it's going to keep moving. It's going to keep going forward. And I can only imagine what uh, the, the platoon medics and the 18 Delta Special Forces medics and the, the Navy corpsmen and all those. I can only imagine what what they're going to the, the level of trauma that they're going to be able to 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 deal with and keep people alive over the next several years as that that medical training continues to evolve. So I'm a product of it. Um, I fully support medical training and combat training as as two means to to get you out of any kind of tight fix. And uh, I'm proof positive that that's a fact. Uh, And I'm grateful to to the guys on my team that kept uh, me and my buddy Mark alive. I'm grateful to the doctors and nurses and uh, physical therapists and occupational therapists and all those others at Walter Reed that um, really went above and beyond. I I called it personal professional because they were extremely professional, but the nature of the job, I mean, it was also personal. And um, I'm eternally grateful for them. Um, So thank you again for allowing me to be a part of this. I've really enjoyed it. It's been really important. Thank you. Thank you again, Dave. It's meant a lot to all of us, and I think the audience has really appreciated what you've had to say. Now, General, over to you for some final words. Thank you, Ranger Doug. Uh, Just a few things in closing from the three programs we've had to date on our wounded. I can say for myself, being wounded a couple of times in Vietnam stayed with me through my career up through the rank of division commander. It instilled in me the responsibility of providing excellent training to our troopers, and leaders' responsibility on care of the wounded. I'd like to close by just giving a short story on a Vietnam lieutenant. So in Vietnam, there was a parachute infantry platoon who got in a firefight. They were pinned down. And they had their point man who was wounded, PFC Joe, in the kill zone. 
Mike, the buck sergeant, was issued next to the platoon leader behind the log where the platoon leader was putting out orders rapidly and trying to call in helo gunships since they were outside of artillery range. Charlie detected moving southwest, moving southwest about 50... The buck sergeant, Mike, said that he was going to go out to the kill zone and pull back Joe. The platoon leader said, no, no, don't go. We got another, we have second squad moving on the flank to take out the NBA that put out the ambush. But Mike would not wait. Buck Sergeant Mike bolted out under fire towards Joe. He was hit, but he managed to drag back Joe and pull him back over the log next to the lieutenant. Toon leader said, Mike, why did you go? I told you not to go. Now I'm going to lose both of you. And Mike told the platoon leader, Sir, because when I got to Joe, he told me that he had come for me. You see, Mike was a platoon medic. All the way, brothers.